how do you care and comfort someone who is suffering, who's grieving, who's in pain? What do you do? What do you not do? Job is a man, oh, hello. Job is a man, as we saw last week, who's experienced profound suffering. He's lost everything. Superannuation, his job, his children, his health. If you saw Job in that moment, what would you do? What would you say? It's an important question to have an answer to. Because the reality is you'll meet people in your life who be diagnosed with cancer, who experience miscarriage, bankruptcy, divorce, loneliness, chronic back pain, MS, loneliness, all sorts of things. What do you say, what do you do to the people that come across in your life? Job's three friends hear that Job is in great turmoil and agony. And they go together, all three of them, with an attitude that I presume you or I would have. It says this in Job chapter 2, verse 11. They go to sympathize with him and comfort him. Good intentions, aren't they? Well-meaning. But it doesn't take long for chapter 16 for Job to say, you are all miserable comforters, all of you. How do they get it so wrong? You know, how, we're going to sympathize, we're going to comfort. You are all miserable comforters. We, as the readers of the book of Job, get an insight into the dialogue. We get to listen in between the dialogue of Job and his three friends. All 23 chapters. And the temptation as we read these chapters, see what Job's friends say is to roll our eyes. And think, oh, how could they say that? Oh, cringe, that's ridiculous. But as we read, as we listen, the reality is we're actually more like Job's friends than we like to admit. That Job was written in part... To say we're actually not so much like Job, but more like his friends. That we have good intentions. We want to sympathize, we want our comfort, but sometimes we can be miserable comforters. And so what we're going to do over the next 20 or 25 minutes, we're going to look at Job's three friends and go on this journey of cringing, ooh, wish I didn't say that, to confessing, I'm sorry I said that, to seeking to comfort well. Okay, that, that's where we're going. So let's look at Job's first friend, Eliphaz the Temanite. Now, Eliphaz is an older man. He's known Job for a while. He knows that Job has counseled others in their time of need. Now, Eliphaz has a firm belief in God. He has good theology. He says this in Job 4. Can a mortal... Be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Job 22. Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? 
See, he rightly declares and says that God is good, he is just, he's in control, he is supreme, he's Lord over all. Tick, tick, tick. All right. But in trying to reconcile a good, perfect God, how does he have that with what Job is experiencing? How can God be good and a good person suffer? So he says in chapter 4, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who plough and sow trouble reap it. Because God is perfect and just, Eliphaz is saying, he would never let a righteous person suffer. Eliphaz loves God. But in wanting to protect God, he throws Job under the bus. He cannot blame God, so he needs to point the finger and he blames Job. Eliphaz, it must be said though, is partly right. He is right that sin always leads to suffering. But the reverse is not necessarily true. Suffering doesn't automatically mean sin. And Eliphaz has presumed, Job, you've done something wrong. He's presumed it and added an extra burden onto Job. Now, remember the first verse of this book? What was it? Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In other words, Job was a righteous man. Now, we know this, the readers. Eliphaz does not. So Eliphaz's solution to this problem is in chapter two, uh, chapter 22, rather, verse 21, he says, Job, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. Now Eliphaz falls into a very dangerous but common trap. He's saying the solution is found within you. You can fix your problem. A modern equivalent to this is being told if you're sick, particularly if you're, or you're chronically sick, if you trust God more, if you have more faith, if you press into him, if you pray more, you'll be restored, you'll be healed. Um, I was involved in the healing service of the cathedral uh, for a couple of years. And there I met a man called Jebba. Jebba had a brain tumour. And uh, in the course of his diagnosis and recovery, he was told a number of times by Christians, uh, people who went to Anglican churches, Jebba, if you had more faith, you'd be healed. And I said, why, Jebba, was that hurtful? And he said, when you're in my situation... You're physically exhausted. Financially, things are tight. Relationships are strained. And the only thing you hold on to is God. And someone says, you don't really trust him. And it crushes you. Now, if you have said that, or the people who said that to Jebba aren't doing it 
from a place, I presume, of maliciousness, of cruelty, right? But it comes often from a place of wanting to protect God. I can't blame God, so I need to blame you. You can fix it. But here's the thing. God doesn't need protecting. He is good. He is just. He is perfect. But his ways are far more mysterious than we can fathom. It might be possible that God is just and good and supreme and allows an innocent person to suffer. Another problem of Eliphaz is he loves to talk about himself a lot. Here's a couple of examples on the screen. Chapter 5, he says this, But if I were you, he goes on to say, So hear it, what he says, and apply it to yourself. Chapter 15, listen to me and I'll explain it to you. This is the trap which I would say 99% of us fall into. Where someone, you're talking to someone, they're going through a tough time, and you can't help but talk about yourself. It goes like this. Someone shares they've just been diagnosed with cancer, and what do you do in your mind? Who do I know who had cancer? Oh, my auntie had cancer. And you say, my auntie's had cancer. We bring it back to ourselves. What's been our experience? We say things like, you're not the only one. I know this person. Or I know how you feel. Uh, A mate of mine, dad died when he was 15. And he was told by someone, I know what you're going through, Isaac. I had a dog die once. I said, Isaac, did you want to punch the guy? I said, yes. And you can see why, right? Now, why do we do it? Why do we talk about our own experiences? It's, It's so natural for us, right? I think we do it because we want to find some sort of connection, don't we? We want to share in the experience. We, 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 we want to relate. But here's the thing. It's never, ever helpful. Ever helpful. Here's a better line. I'm sorry. I cannot imagine what you're going through. Some of you are probably thinking, yes, but what if I've been through a similar situation to them? Is it all right to share then? You know, they may want to hear my experience, my uh, practical advice, give them hope. I've been through that and survived. Here's the thing. You may think they need to hear it. They don't. You may think they need to hear what you've been through. They don't. Pete O'Brien, who's a former lecturer of Moore College, he, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And he said, I remember him saying, he, when talking to other people who have a similar diagnosis, he doesn't share his experience with cancer. And he said, I don't share it because what they're going through is different to what I'm going through. Where they're at is different to where I'm at. Their support is different to my support. And so I want not to place my experience on them, but I want them to be able to share what they're going through, to listen well. Look, even if you're not convinced by it, just say this. Look, I've been where you've been, and I'm more than happy to talk about it. Just let me know and leave it with them and let them make 
a little step in asking you what it's like. Being a good comforter has very little to do with how much you've suffered. It has much more to do with how well you listen. And listening, friends, is tough stuff. Eliphaz, through the course of this book, gets more and more frustrated with Job. Why? Because Job is not listening to him. What's the irony there? Eliphaz should have been listening to Job. But listening is not easy. It is tough. It means asking questions, being curious. Do you want to talk about it? How do you feel? That sounds frustrating, painful, stressful. It's trying to say, what is it life like for them? It means looking at them. Interacting with them, even listening to them, even if there's a more interesting conversation happening over here, ignoring that and giving them your sole attention. Even if the phone rings, not answering it. It's saying very important words like, hmm, really, gee. Um, Lil Porup, who uh, comes to this congregation, uh, at the beginning of this year did the partial care course. Um, she gave me permission to tell you this. Uh, she did the partial care course, which I highly recommend. And it came to the night on listening. And it was a couple of days later where a friend called her who was going through a bit of grief. And she decided to put the listening thing she learned into practice. So she asked some questions and over the course of about half an hour or so, she only said ten words. Hmm, really? Gee. And by the end of the half an hour, her friend said, thank you. This has been so helpful. Lil said, oh, it worked. This listening thing worked. To be listened to is a rare thing, but gee, it's a beautiful thing. And how different this book would have been if Eliphaz listened. And there were less, but if I were you, comments. So that's Eliphaz. Let's move on to the second friend, Bildad. Now, Bildad is different to Eliphaz, not only because he's from a different land, the land of Shuhite, but he appears to be more of a moralist, loves the right and the wrong. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. He says in Job chapter 8, Surely God does not reject one who is blameless. Now, in the West, we call this moralism. In the East, they call it karma. And Bildad's solution is because Job's in a bad situation, he needs to do good things so that God will reward him. He says in chapter 8, But if I were you, if you, sorry, but if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now, he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Now, this kind of thinking makes sense at first, right? Bad thing. If you've done something bad, then you deserve to experience bad things. If you've done something good, then you deserve to experience good things. It makes sense at first. Until you remember that Job was innocent and blameless. It makes perfect sense until you walk down the ward of the children's hospital. And then all of a sudden, this 
thinking doesn't make all that much sense. And it has a darker side. In chapter 8, verse 4, Bildad says, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Bildad is saying there, because bad things happen to your children, they deserved it. They deserved to die. The problem with moralism, the problem with the moralist, well, there's two problems, isn't there? One is it ignores themselves. Job, in a way, says to Bill then, hold the phone. Chapter 16, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. In other words, Bildad, you've done things wrong too. Why aren't you suffering? Um, Jebba, who I mentioned a moment ago, he said another thing. He said, when people say, have more faith or be a better person, and then you'll be healed. Often it is healthy people saying it to sick people. Which is, what they're really saying is, I'm right with God, you're not. I'm a good person, you're not. It's a backhanded compliment. The other problem with this is it ignores Jesus. Because if good things happen to good people, what was Jesus doing on that cross? Jesus at that cross smashes moralism. He smashes karma. Because the worst, most imaginable suffering happened to the most perfect person ever. So that people like you and I can get what we don't deserve. The third and final friend is Zophar the Namathite. He's a man who loves logic and reason. He's what I call a fixer. Has the answers. He's the solver of the problems. Some of you are probably thinking, this is probably me. This is what he says in Job 11. Yet, Job, if you devote your heart to him, stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, you lift up your face, stand firm without fear, and you'll surely forget your trouble, recalling it as water gone by. Saying simple, what you need to do, devote yourself, lift up your head, smile a bit more, listen to a bit of buble, and all your troubles will be gone, like the tide going out. You forget that your children died. You forget your health problems. They'll just go. When you think simplistically, when you think you've understood God and his ways, when you don't understand the situation, rubbish will pour from your mouth because you'll minimize God or you'll minimize people's pain. You'll say things like, well, everything happens for a reason. It's for the best. Are you sure your pain's not psychological? Haven't you moved on yet? No joke, I've heard people who've had chronic back pain being told, why don't you just get a massage? People who have cancer being told, you should eat more kale, that'll solve it. People who've had a miscarriage being told, well, you can always have another baby. But Zophar's not done. One of the most offensive comments he says is in chapter 11, verse 6. True wisdom has two sides. Know this. 
God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, it could have been worse, Job. Top tip. If you're talking to someone whose things are not going well for them, and you begin your sentence with, at least, end it. Because it's not going to be helpful. If you say things like, well, at least you're still alive. At least there's not cancer. At least there's a cure. Simplistic answers are never helpful. They're never beneficial. The Bible never gives them and neither should we. Suffering and grief, it's not logical. It's not rational. It can't just be fixed. It's complex. It's ongoing. It's messy. And rather than offering glib remarks... A better thing to do is actually practically care for people. Is to cook them a meal, drop it off at their house, to offer to take them to the hospital, to write a letter of appreciation, how much they mean to you. Send them a text message saying, I'm praying for you. A psalm. Actually pray for them and what they need. We can't solve people's pain or grief. But we can be with them in it. Now I imagine through the course of this sermon, you're probably thinking, I've said that and I wish I didn't. You recall a time when you said something, you think, I wish I could put that back in. Regrets, missed opportunities, maybe even moments when you didn't know what to do so you just walked away. We will cringe, not only at Job's friends, but ourselves. At the times we, we, in, we had good intentions, want to care for them, but in the end, we became more miserable comforters than we'd like to admit. So we need to confess. We need to say, I'm sorry, to God and to those people that we may have hurt even more. The Spirit may be prompting you, there's someone in your life that maybe you weren't all that helpful to. And then we want to seek to be better comforters. So how can I be a better listener? I find going to a hospital hard. Maybe I can go with a friend and we can go visit that person. I'm always the kind of person who wants to fix it, but you know what? Maybe I need to pray more. I'm the kind of person who loves to speak about myself. Maybe I need to do more of this and less of this. And the reality is you're going to go on that journey again and again of cringing, confessing, comforting, back and forth. And here's the thing. It's hard work. It's hard and it's complex because people are different. I've been told by people who said the best thing that was helpful for them is when they could just talk about what they're going through. The pain, the, the diagnosis... They would be able to just share. And other people say, I loved when I didn't have to talk about it. We talked about the footy and how the dragons were doing over the weekend. Other people said, I love it when that person just came and they sat with me and we did nothing. Whereas other people would say, I loved when that person came and they, they cleaned up my house. Different things there. What do you do? People are different. But here's the thing. If you're wanting to be the perfect comforter, you're going to fail at it. 
Only God is the perfect comforter, not us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, these beautiful words in verse 3 are said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God not only has good intentions, but good practice. Think about it. God the Father is the only one who can say, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. Do you know what he says? Talk to me. I want to listen to you. Pray to me. Anytime, anywhere, I'm listening. Jesus, God's Son, knows full well what it's like to suffer. But he says, come to me and weep and grieve and grieve with hope. God the Holy Spirit doesn't give cliched responses to get you through. But the Spirit, God's empowering presence, is with you and somehow keeps you going day by day. Only God is the perfect comforter. Not us. But that's not an excuse. But rather it's a motivation to grow in the way we comfort. To be better comforters than we once were. It's going to take effort. It's going to take self-reflection. It's going to take learning. It's going to take discipline. But we want to be better comforters. Let me end by telling you an example that I experienced oh, about a couple of years ago now. I was at the cathedral above town halls, 8 o'clock service, and a man who's clearly from the Defence Force came in. And at the end of the service, I noticed he was crying. Not just a tear or two, he was, he was weeping. And I sat next to him and I said, are you okay, do you want to talk about it? And he then began to share that he was about to be deployed for a year or two, and he was so overwhelmed with loneliness. He was terrified of the thought of saying goodbye to his parents and his girlfriend. And he was entering a situation where he would now be in charge of his friends. So he felt alone. As Tommy was his name, as he was talking, you know what was going in my head? A couple of things. I'll give you a window into this. I thought, firstly, he's lonely. When have I been lonely? I was once lost in the woods. Maybe I should. And I went to, I z- and I said, hmm, instead. The next thing that went into my head was like, hang on, this guy signed up for the Defence Force. He, he had a choice in the matter. Why is he complaining about it? And I could feel this, keep a stiff upper lip coming. I had to bite it, put it back down. That's not what he needed to hear. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I could fix the problem. Maybe I could call the Defence Force and say, hey, this guy needs to get out. And I realised, I can't. I can't fix it. So I just kept on listening. At the end of it, about 45 minutes, he said, thank you. It's been helpful. And I said, look, tell me, obviously I can't help you anymore, 
but I would love to pray for you. And I prayed for him. This was a man, he wasn't a Christian. He just wandered into church and he wanted prayer. So I prayed for him and then he left. That was about 45 minutes. And can I tell you, it was hard work. It was hard work not to talk about myself, not to think, what am I going to say next? What, what, how can I fix? It was hard work. It was draining. But we get the privilege, brothers and sisters, the privilege of caring for people in their time of need. We get to participate in God's work of caring for the lonely, the broken, the chronically unwell, for the tragedies, for the sudden moments of suffering to the everyday and the ongoing. We get to participate with God in his work. And there will be times when we cringe. Oof, why did I say that? And we'll confess, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And we want to be better comforters by God's grace to be better listeners and to be better friends. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, I'm sure there's people here who, like myself, can recall times which we cringe at, where we've not been a good friend to those around us. We ask, Lord, that you would prompt us to think about how we can care and comfort people well. To take the step of listening, of caring, of practically supporting, of being there. We ask, Lord, that when we say those Bildad and Eliphaz Zophar-like comments that we would apologize and rather be more like you, Lord God, who has so perfectly comforted us in all our troubles, that we may comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. Amen.